I didn't spot him earlier today, but hey, just if you spot or if you know Dave Sherman, um, today happens to be his birthday, and I, I give a special shout out to him. He helps us with every construction project that I think we've, <laughs> maybe that we've ever done at this church in a really significant way, and, uh, and um, he's very generous with his time, and so I don't, I don't think I see him here today, but if you know him or, uh, or if you see him around, tell him happy birthday and how much we appreciate his role here. Um, okay, so first... Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. I'm picking up where Peter broke into song. He's getting all excited. I'm going to show you where I think, why I think he does here in a second. But he breaks into song, and, and for him, that means quoting a psalm. And so as he's quoting from the psalms here in 1 Peter chapter 3, um, and he's quoting from Psalm 34. So we're going to jump over to the 34th psalm, starting in verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So I think, I think the first verse there and the last one are connected. I think there's a little bit of a uh, bookends here. And so who, who wants to have a life that you're happy with? that your memory of your life is good, that you look at your life and say, I'm pleased with this, I'm happy with this. Years ago, even though I was very rigidly trained to ask clients in the very first session, um, what are your goals for counseling? Within about a year of doing counseling, I stopped doing that. Um, and for those who are therapists in the room, you probably have as well. And here's why, because when you ask people, what is your goal for counseling? They all 100% give the same answer. It is, I want to be happy. There you go. And so, um, and so it was really easy to go like, okay, well, good news, you will be, and then you won't be, but then, then you will be, and then you won't be, but good news, you, you will be, and then you won't be. And that's a, this is how emotions work. And so I would tell people like, listen, you can stay and just stay here with me and do counseling with me for a few weeks and you'll feel better in a few weeks. I mean, you would have, whether you came to counseling or not, you'd be happy because then then we'll can I'll cancel you and then it'll be like, nope, you've graduated because you're happy. And in the three weeks when you're not happy anymore, it's because you've stopped getting counseling, apparently, and you need to come back. And like, this is, I think, how a lot of that plays out sometimes when it comes to people who are just saying, I just want to feel happy. And there's good news and bad news with that. So that's the truth of all human emotions. They come and they go. This is more than that. This is someone who wants to be able to look at their life and say, was this a good life? Am I living a good life? Am I pleased with the life I am living? And then ends with saying, that the idea that God would cut off someone's memory from the earth, and, and idea, the idea being that no one will remember you were ever here. <clears throat> that's, a, that's quite a consequence for someone who wants to be significant. So you want to have a life that's good? The, the psalmist is going to give you some very easy advice. Number one, keep your tongue from evil. Now, this, is, this isn't just moral evil here. This word here means harsh, bitter, abusive type of language. So stop talking this way. Don't engage with people. Don't mock people. Don't be, don't be mean to people with your words. Um, be gentle with your words. Like this is step one. You want to have a life you look back on and go, I had a good life. Here's one. Stop being mean and abusive and edgy with your language. Number two, and I thought for a long time, I would have told you until I studied this, that this was just the, the stereotypical kind of psalmist you know, repetition. We repeat the same concepts again and again. That's not what's happening here. Your lips, to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. The second word here is not the same concept at all. It's the opposite. It is 
but it's still an evil. It is the smooth, dishonest, kind of oily kind of language. It's someone who's buttering you up. It's, they're still manipulating you. They're still controlling you, but they're doing it with, with kind of a sleazy language. And that's So one, keep yourself from abusive, aggressive, in people's face kind of language. And also, don't try to manipulate people to get your way with them just by having, you know, kind of that kind of language, all right? So this is two different things. This will be good. And I, and I think we can connect with that because we know. I mean, when you get what you want and the only reason you got it was because you cajoled or fooled somebody into giving it to you, it's not very satisfying. Um, if, if you can't tell the difference between someone who has given, given you what you want because they gave in to your emotional blackmail and someone who gives it to you because they freely choose to do it, you're probably diagnosable, and we need to talk. If you can't tell the difference between those two, there's a problem there. You look back on your life, you want to see, no, people who loved me chose to. They freely chose to trust me and respect me, not because they knew there was a price to pay if they didn't. And then he says this, seek peace and pursue it. This, I think, is the phrase that motivated Peter to connect to this psalm. He's just been talking about (coughs) unity <clears throat> within the church. And I think this is how this verse came to his mind, that peace is something within the body of believers that we seek and pursue. We want it and we hunt for it. We dig for it. We work for it. It doesn't come naturally to us. It's not ever going to. And here's why. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut the memory of them off from the earth. Isn't that a funny little uh, play on words here that the psalmist uses? Same face, two very different things going on. So in one, you have God's eyes and ears pointed towards you for blessing. In the other, you have God's face pointed towards you to punish. We'll get to one of those before we're done. But this idea that is very Jewish, and I think it's because they're so family-oriented. How many of you had a healthy relationship with your parents, have a healthy relationship with your parents, and they could look at you, same face, they could, they could look at you and communicate, you're okay. There's a look they could give you that would tell you, I'm safe, I'm okay, everything is right in the world. And the very same face they could give you with a different look on that face that tells you, everything is not all right in your world. <laughs> right? That's what's going on here. The same God who looks at you, you want him to look on you with that blessing that comes from, he looks and he sees what he wants to see. Versus he looks and sees something that he thinks needs to change. <clears throat> don't want to live that way. We want to be, when you think back on your life, how you want to be remembered is that you were a blessing in Jesus' name. Now that phrase doesn't connect with you, go back and listen to last week's sermon. A blessing in Jesus' name. If you know someone who's a blessing like that to you, that that has been their life with you, tell them. Communicate the appreciation for that. That means they were seeking peace and pursuing it. It probably wasn't easy. If it is you, rejoice and stay strong in seeking to live out what it means to be a blessing in Jesus' name. If that's not you, rejoice because Jesus can make all things new. And that can include you and me. And good news, Peter is about to unpack what it looks like to be a blessing even in a world that hates you. That's what we're going to see for most of the rest of this book, this letter. 1 Peter 3.13 begins with this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, the natural tendency, even most of the commentaries, treat this as a, as a rhetorical question, right? Who is there to harm you if you're zealous to do what's good? Well, I mean, if you're zealous to do what's good, no one's going to harm you. 
The problem is, if, if that's right, it's a total non sequitur given that he just sent up, spent a whole chapter talking about how you're going to suffer for doing good, and he's about to go into the next section talking about how you're going to suffer for doing good. And so that can't be, it can't be as simple as, I think Peter is saying, it should be like this. It should be that if you're zealous for doing good, there would be no consequence for it. And by should, I think you can apply that to in his kingdom. In his kingdom with kingdom people, you should never face consequences. You should never be in trouble. You should never face harm for being zealous to do good. That would be my prayer for us as a church. Church, please make this a place where when people are trying to do good, even imperfectly, that they would face no harm. That the way we communicate, even our dissatisfaction is done with gentleness. It's amazing how when people communicate critique as a pastor, as with the staff, when people communicate critique, it's amazing to watch different people communicate in different ways. And what they do is reveal in a second the level of maturity or immaturity that is wrapped up in their Christian walk. An immature person doesn't know how to communicate critique or ask for change in a way that is life-giving. They only know how to demand something and throw out threats and all that kind of stuff all in one. It's the, it's the are you going to change this or are we wait until someone gets hurt type of question. Like, no, we're just waiting for someone to get hurt. That's what we're doing. I'm, gl I'm glad you called it, right? It's a, it is an automatic, like a negative, aggressive, um, your own trial, and I've been gathering evidence, and we're going to start our conversation with the verdict. Versus, which is most common, by the way, around here, that is that someone who says, hey, I noticed this. How can we make it better? How can we improve it? How can I improve it? How can I make it better? What can I do to positively affect this? It's the very same criticism, and both of them may get the problem fixed, but one of them is life-giving, and one of them isn't. And Peter's talking about, listen, you're going to have to seek peace and pursue it. If you're zealous for doing what's good, this should be a culture where if you're zealous for doing what's good, even as badly as we are, or even as bad as we are at it, that you wouldn't face harm for it. But in order to do this comfort, to do this well, we've got a comment. According to Ellicott, one of the commentaries I often use, this verse is looking to the future. It means, if you become zealots, who's going to do you harm? Zealots for righteousness. Now, this is a, this is a charged word. This is only a few years before the zealots are going to essentially initiate a civil war in Jerusalem, which will result in the temple being burned to the ground, thrown off this mountaintop, and the, the uh, Romans coming in and slaughtering tens of thousands of people. So the word zealot is a key word for Jewish thinking. It's a powerful word, and it's a, it's a charged word. This idea, though, is not zealots for government change, which is what they were zealots about, but zealots for goodness. Zealots for righteousness, for moral rightness. We talked about this Jewish, the, the Jewish ideal of zealotry, of zeal, of being zealous, is a big deal in Jewish thinking. In the honor-shame culture that they were, it's a, it's a way, it goes way, way back. Remember we talked about, when we studied Daniel, we talked about how what made the Maccabees, part of what made them so famous and so well-loved was their zeal. And often this zeal in that era was portrayed in almost a murderous form, often a very violent form. One of the Maccabees who really started the whole re the Maccabean re uh, uh, revolt was when he was faced, demanded that he would sacrifice to a Greek god, said no. And when another Jew stepped forward and said, well, I'll do it, the first one slaughtered him on the spot. That's what he was famous for. And that was considered to be a positive. Listen to this. The, the, maybe the most famous example of Jewish Old Testament zeal is a man named Phineas, the son of Eleazar. 
Listen to Numbers 25.10. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous or zealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So what was it that Phinehas had done? He had so embraced God's wrath against sin that what had happened is the people of Israel were taking um, wives, probably without consent, taking foreign women without their consent and dragging them back to their tents and committing adultery with them in their tents. And Phineas is out, uh, a relative of the, of the priests, and this happens right in front of the people. The people are out worshiping, and, and a guy drags a woman to his tent right in front of everybody. And Phineas is filled with a righteous anger and walks in, and this one was apparently with consent because she was guilty as well, and he walks in with a spear and he pins both of them to the ground with the spear at the same moment. That's how filled with rage at the offense against his holiness that God was, that when Phineas did this, God said, you know what, at least someone around there is angry about the right stuff, so I don't have to wipe you people out. It's a very harsh and difficult passage to, to, to deal with and to, to stumble through in numbers here. But the idea being, this is where the Jews look for the idea of zeal. Now, Jesus transfers the, the, the path of that zeal when he shows up and teaches, and Peter's focusing on this idea of zeal. Again, it's a very deeply Jewish concept that the Jews in the audience would have understood. And he's saying, this is not zeal about obeying the law, about judging the law this is now zeal about following the example of Christ. Now, what was Christ's example that we saw in the last passage? Christ's example was that he faced suffering having done no wrong, and he did so silently. This is the example that we're given. Look, look back in verse 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. There's the concept of zeal that Peter wants us to connect to. Now, is it rhetorical? I don't think so. It's not, certainly not a rhetorical, no one will ever hurt you if you do what's right. Peter noted that Jesus was our example. He committed no sin and yet bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's suffering for injustice. Consider what Peter just told servants in 1 Peter 2.20, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When you do good and suffer for it. This is, a, this is important, but have you ever, listen to what, um, in verse 14, so he says, listen, in this broken world, who would hurt you for doing what's right? Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So in other words, it certainly can happen. It certainly does happen. And yet there's a blessing in that. Now that may sound familiar to the students of the Bible in the room. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. It's a reversal of a phrase you've heard before. Peter is quoting his rabbi. 30 years ago, he heard Jesus say these words in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right there. So as Peter has held on to this phrase, this has come back to Peter in a time of persecution. Of course it does. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Exactly a quote. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Next phrase, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, what a fascinating phrase. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear 
of the people who are going to persecute you, put you on trial, arrest you, torture you, and kill you for righteousness' sake. Don't be afraid of them, right? Now, I don't think that that's as simple as that. I don't think the idea of not being afraid, I want to talk about what this is. So, I have two phobias uh, that I know of, two. One is I'm afraid of big things underwater. I don't know if any of the rest of you have that one. It freaks me out. Um, I don't know why it freaks me out. It doesn't have to be anything threatening, just really big things underwater. It's actually the main reason I got scuba certified was to face this fear. Um, and especially now, now where I go scuba diving is actually really clear, and so it's not so bad. It needs to be like dark, scary water. That's when I really, really gets my heart rate going. Um, floating down the Buffalo River one time, there was a place where it was real shallow, and then it got suddenly very deep, and there was a big old giant, like 30-foot rock in the middle of the the middle of the river, and me drifting toward it, just like, yeah, full-blown panic attack. So I made myself do it like 10 or 15 times, over and over again, underwater, trying to make that fear go away. My long-term goal is to tank dive with sharks, uh, just to experience the true terror that that would mean, because um, that's, you know, that's how you get used to overcoming things that are scary to you. It's one of the reasons that I am a Christian, is that there's not this fake, false presentation of like, nah, things aren't really scary. It's not real, some religions, the reality around us isn't real. You can just ignore it. No, it's scary. Some things are hard. They really are. They're scary. My other big phobia is being unjustly imprisoned. Um, I grew up with that one naturally because I grew up in the 80s. When it seemed like every movie that came out, and there's a, I, I sent a bunch of them to David. You got those up there? Next slide. There we go. Um, you remember all these? I mean, it, was, it, was, it seemed like every big hit movie in the 80s. And I left a bunch out. There were a whole bunch more. In fact, I really was really triggering to go through the exercise of going back and looking at these. Like, oh, yeah, that one. Oh, and that one. Oh, no, that one. And so uh, I just put a few up here. Now, obviously, Prisoner of Azkaban was not in the 80s. Um, that was later. But, oh, my gosh, what a terrifying story, by the way. Those of you who have not, you thought about the fact that Sirius Black for, like, 15 years was stuck in a prison where they suck your soul out? Oh my goodness, there's nothing okay about that. Like that's, and it's like in the book, it's like, now he's out, so it's okay. Like, no, it's not. It's not okay. It's, it's just great. It's a horrible fear, the thought of being an innocent person who's then locked up and you've done nothing wrong. I mean, how helpless could that feel, right? That's a horrible feeling. I really, I'm telling you, I'm not kidding. I like even just thinking, I don't even watch these movies anymore. People will say like, oh, there's a really cool movie. Like, nope, prison movie, not going. Like, it's, it's just, it's out. I don't do it. It's unlike, I'm willing to face the shark cage, not those things anymore. I'm I'm done with it. And I'm being told by Peter, I don't have to be afraid of it. But, but I don't think this means it's not terrifying. I think the idea of being persecuted wrongly is terrifying. 1 Peter 3, 6. Note, remember what he told the women. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. It doesn't mean it's not frightening. Again, one of the reasons of a Christian is that God's Word presents reality as uncomfortable, not with easy answers. There are not easy answers to the questions of fear and persecution and human suffering. There's a whole book called Job, where at the end of the book of Job, God tells Job, listen, I could try to explain this to you, but you wouldn't get it because you can't handle the easy stuff. And listen, if you can't handle the easy stuff like creating stars and spinning them out into space and making it snow, if you can't do that easy stuff, you're never going to understand the difficult stuff like human suffering. It just transcends you. It's too big for you. And Jesus, God is patient with it. Every time somebody throws Jesus an easy answer, he shuts him down. 
But then he doesn't offer up some easy answer to solve it, which is we would love to, I would love to have an easy answer for why humans suffer and face persecution and, and injustice. I would love that. Apparently, it doesn't exist. And instead, I learned to live, I'd, I would rather take that answer. Listen, you, this is no fun, and it stinks, and it can be really hard, and I get that you don't understand it, rather than somebody giving me a pat on the head. It's not real. It, 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 all, is, it all is good. In the end, the safest place to be is God's will. No, it isn't. Being in God's will will get you killed all the time. It happens all through Scripture. It's happened all through history. If you mean it's the best place to be for eternity, well, yeah. But in the meantime, it may get you tortured and killed. It's not a Bible verse. It is, there are things that are truly scary. There are things that are terrifying. Growing up is scary. Community is legitimately fear-inducing. Moving away from a habit that my flesh is dependent on, is that I would no longer need, is terrifying. If you've never had to do that, blessings on you. You probably need to. When we need to, to really take the things in our lives and have God conform them out of our lives into something else, the addictions and the crutches and the things that we prop our identity on to make us feel better, and when we have to give those things up, it is truly terrifying. Apparently, God thinks we need Him and each other to make those things happen. As part of why at this church we have small groups, we have discipleship groups, is that as we're being conformed to the image of His Son, it's going to be painful at times. Having those parts of us heated and shaped and molded and stricken off and burned out is not easy. We have, a, we have a life group that is growing called Regen that is purely to focus on those things in our life. It's, if you've got things like that in your life and you've not signed up, they've only met once, you can come in for the first couple of weeks. They, I'd really love to encourage you to face down these things and grow in them. See, here's the deal. When you say, I need to get to the top of the mountain, climbing the mountain is going to be tough. But climbing the mountain without a guide is going to take you forever. You may never do it. You're going to have dead ends and valleys. and You're going to climb in directions that are just ridiculous. What you need is a guide. You need a guide to walk you through that, someone who knows how to get to the top of the mountain and who can then guide you through that. Let me strongly encourage you with friendship, with leadership, with counseling, with medical help, with, with things like small groups like Regeneration, with the teachers who are around us. I'd love to encourage you. It's not that these things aren't frightening. It's that we don't have to fear things that are frightening. That's what makes Christians weird. We don't have to fear terrifying things. Because we don't have the same, those terrifying things don't have the same authority as our God does. They don't have that same power. Proverbs 31, which we read during um, our, our devotional time during uh, um, communion this morning. Proverbs 31, 25, great passage. Strength and dignity are clothing. It's a great whole passage, uh, a poem inspired to honor women of strength. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. How could we live in a how could we be sane in an insane world where true injustice is happening all the time all around us? How do you stay sane in that? Being so, a few years ago, I was wrongly ticketed and eventually wrongly found guilty of not wearing a seatbelt. Not really a big deal, and it terrified me. The thought that I could go into a community and find injustice terrified me, and for the first time, I got the tiniest taste of what Christians around the world face, of what our African-American brothers and sisters have faced for decades in America, where you could be found guilty of something you had no part in. 
That was terrifying to me. And this was a seatbelt ticket. And yet it gave me the tiniest taste of what it must have been for our forebears. If I could be made paranoid enough to want to avoid an entire town, and I did for several years, if I could be made paranoid enough to want to avoid an entire town because such a tiny, meaningless injustice, what must deep injustice truly be like? And yet, we live in an unjust world. Psalms to, in Psalm chapter 2, you read about the nations raging and plotting and scheming and, and doing all these, these great things and, and thinking they've got all this stuff figured out. And it, it gets to the second paragraph. It says, and God laughs. He just laughs. I'm sure that'll work out, he says. Sure, why don't you run with that? Why can the woman with strength and dignity or her clothing, why can she laugh at the days to come? She's laughing alongside her Lord. He started laughing. She's just laughing with him. Oh, that's right. You're God, not all the rest of this. The authority rests in you. Peter has a solution for how we deal with this. We're likely to face this kind of persecution again, and so Peter's going to give us the guide on how to face these. Is it get smarter, get angrier, get active, trust more in your own perspective? It is not. Now, it's not wrong to be angry about the things that anger God. It's not wrong to stand up against oppression. Those are great when they're founded on the right things. But those aren't going to hold together in the storm by themselves. You need something better than your strength. You need something better than your understanding. We need something better than our own wisdom. And so Peter's going to give us a few steps. Here's where we start. Number one, in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, number one, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What a, what a packed phrase. Luckily, we've already looked at a lot of these words. We spent a long time on honor. It's when we talked about the plates how I show the proper treatment to the proper plate. So I should show the proper treatment to Jesus Christ. What type of treatment should I give him in my heart? In my heart, how should I treat him? As the chosen one, Christ. As the master, Kyria, Lord. And I should recognize him as holy, set apart, sacred, special. Christ is the one who makes the promise about blessings being found in persecution. And he'll have to deliver them. We accept him as our true authority, not the things that we fear. They don't have the same authority as he does in our life. We treat him as special and sacred. We see him as he is. We worship him and serve him. And we worship and serve him alone. He is Lord. We accept and align ourselves with this. A few years ago, and I don't remember how long, it's been a while, but Dr. Mark Price over at Southside Baptist Church, who I love, He's such a shepherd, and he, uh, he was preaching one Sunday, and he said, I think I'm just about done with this whole conversation about I'm going to make Jesus Lord of my life. He's like, let me, let me let you in on a secret. Jesus is Lord of your life. You can get in alignment with that or not, but you don't give him any titles. He's not waiting on you for permission. He's not waiting for you to bestow him. He doesn't, he doesn't need you. Um, to give him a promotion. It's his throne. It's his life. He'll sit on it. Thank you very much. Now, you, you may have to get in alignment with that. You may have to accept the truth of that. You may have to put your life in order to that. You may have to get out of denial of the denial of that. He's not Lord of my life. I'm sorry, he is. Now, you may need to figure out how to get in alignment with that. He is Lord. He is holy. Now, what we need to do is recognize the truth of that and live according to the truth of that. And when we do, 
all of a sudden what we realize is that we don't need to pay any attention to the man behind the curtain, the fears and the scary things in life that are fearful and are scary. We don't have to give them authority because they don't have authority in the life of a Christian. It's been stripped of them. We're no longer slaves to fear or slaves to sin. They've been stripped of their master role. Now we're supposed to see him as Lord. What makes him special? He is the only sound foundation. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only light that we can trust in. The only worthwhile fundamental purpose in life. The only one worth making our lives about. So in our hearts we honor him, the Christ, as Lord and holy. So with that in mind, too... We always should be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What a great passage. A lot of people have quoted this. This is where we get one whole wing of the study of theology. In theology, we have essentially three wings. Um, there is doctrine or dogma, and that's conversations about God with other believers. Then there is apologetics, which is the conversation about God with non-believers. And then there is ethics, which is right living according to the, uh, the right truth of theology. Apologetics is where we get that word here. It's where the word, you get the word defense or reason. Uh, the, the idea that it's uh, where we get the word, you know, so we know the word logos, where we get the word logic. It shows up twice here. Apologetics is apologos, a reason for, a logical defense of, a statement to show why it exists. You may not know this, but Christianity is a reasonable faith. If you were raised like I was, in at least one of the churches I grew up in, I was taught that faith and knowledge are somehow opposites of one another, and that's ridiculous. If I get on a plane to fly in that plane, I am putting the faith in that plane to fly me. It just means trust. Faith means nothing more than trust. It's funny, people will want to argue that, and I'm like, look it up. I promise you the first definition will be about trust. It's what the word means. You don't get to change it. The fact that that Mark Twain years ago said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Mark Twain doesn't get to redefine words. That's what the word faith means. It means trust. I am putting my confidence in this to save me or to whatever. In, this, in the plane, to fly me. To not fall out of the air like a stone, right? That's what I'm counting on it to do. I can know nothing. I can think that it flies from fairy dust. I can think that it flies because I have a PhD in aeronautics. It's the same trust my reasoning for that trust is obviously very, very different. That's a reasonable faith. And Christianity is a reasonable faith. We have a whole book meant to defend it. We have within that book specific, even specific books like Romans, Hebrews, John, that are linear arguments for the sake of this cause. They're meant to be that. Now, you can also, so some of the things, so here's some of the ways you can be. So it, it is good to prepare yourself. It says that. Be prepared. So you want to be prepared. How do you defend your hope? And it may be different. You may have different motivations, different ways that you go, this is why I defend it. This is why I have hope. My hope follows in this. So one would be your personal experience. That you would say, here's what God has done for me, with me. Okay, good. That is a reason for the hope that is in you. It's not empirical evidence. So if someone else is all about empirical evidence, our personal experience is not going to convince them. But notice it doesn't say that our job is to convince them. Our job is to give, that, to be prepared to give them a reason. Why do I have this hope? Oh, I have this hope. One of them is because of this experience that I had with God, and that gives me hope. Good. Nothing wrong with that. That's not somehow a negative. Another one would be history, for example. 
that you would say, listen, I'm a student of history, and I think history is best explained by this example of what's going on with Jesus Christ. I think the way we see the early apostles behave and the history we have from that, the best explanation from that is they experienced something miraculous. What they say they experienced was Jesus was dead, I mean, Jesus was alive, and then he was dead, and then he was alive again. That's not a matter of, of somehow uh, blind faith for them. For them, that was an experience. It's history. Did they behave, and it does history convince you? It may. If it does, be prepared to talk about that. Maybe, maybe it's revelation. Maybe what you experienced in Scripture. There have been numerous people in history. Dr. William Lane Craig, one of the great apologists alive today, what convinced him was he read about Jesus in the Bible. And he was so impressed with the person of Jesus, like, who does this? Who is like this? No one's like this. And it so impressed him, he started asking the one Christian friend who he knew, like, why does Jesus do this? And what's going on with this? Which turned into a Bible study, which turned into Dr. Craig becoming a believer. For him, it was revelation. It was the fact that what was represented in the Holy Bible made the most sense to him. A brilliant man made the most sense. It answered all those, the, most, the best questions the best way. Um, one other, another one is reason. So I've got, some, I've got something fun with this one. Now, you may have heard of the reasonable arguments for the existence of God, for example. But it is good to know reason with almost all of these. that you, It's not like you can say something with 100% confidence, like, 100%, there's absolutely no other possible explanation. Like the airplane flew because of the laws of aeronautics. Can you prove it wasn't invisible fairy dust? I mean, really, can you prove it? There's always that slight, like, I mean, yes, okay, maybe, uh, right? And so what the, the idea is to say, what is the best explanation? What is the best explanation? That's what we're looking for. So I'm going to need, I'm gonna need a, uh, a, a person from the audience. Ben, will you come be my, uh, my lovely assistant here, please? Um, okay, so there's, a deck, there's some cards in there. Yes? I know your hand's big. Mine is too. Can you reach in and get them out? It's not easy. Sorry. He, I should have gotten somebody with smaller hands. He has the same crisis I do with this. He actually cannot do it. Okay, you can let go, Ben. Noah, can you do it? And <laughs> This is the first service. Okay, you grab those cards out. Good. Got them? Okay, oh, oh, didn't got to get them all. There we go. Okay, good. Now look at them. Make sure you verify for me that it's the ace through ten of spades. Got them all? Okay, so you got the ace. So there's the ace. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They're all there? Good. Okay, can you mix and make sure, by the way, then there's no other cards in there, right? No. Okay, good. Can you mix them up for me? Let me know when you're done. You're done? Okay, can you throw them back in there? Perfect, excellent. You did a great job. You may have a seat. Excellent, well done. Okay, so <coughs> how many of you, i got some statisticians in the room. I'm going to reach in. What are the odds of me pulling out the ace first? Close, one in 10, right? Good, one in 10, very close. Okay, so I'm going to reach in and pull out, and if I get the ace first, you'll be impressed because it's one in 10, but you won't be very impressed. So the question is, at what point is there a more rational answer than the odds? Not proof. You can't go, listen, 100% sure that you didn't just pull the ace out, right? Because it could happen, one in 10, right? You all with me with that? Okay, good. Is it the ace, by the way? Okay, good. That's really good. Okay, good. Ready? Okay, what if I pull out the two next? What's the, what are my odds then? And by the way, it's important, next. Any mathematicians? Not one in 10, because I said next. No, nope. one in 100. 
It goes up by the power of the options. So it's not 1 in 10, it's 1 in 100, because I did the ace first, and now the 2 next. Did I get the 2? Very good. Okay, how many of you are still with me? Like, whoa, that's the odds are against you. 1 in a, one in 100, and you did it, right? Right? So exactly, I should play poker, right? you think I'd be better at it if I could do this, right? <laughs> now, how about, at what point do I lose you? Somebody go ahead and tell me, like, at what point do you go like, nah, it's a trick. It can't be a chance. Already. Some of you are there, like, you're like, whatever, I'm a Baptist, right? I don't buy any of this. <laughs> However, all my lottery ticket buyers in the room, you should totally still be with me, right? Right? You should be like, oh, it could happen. It totally could happen. Someone's got to win, right? That's totally could be what, is it the three? Good, one in a thousand. At what point, at what point do I lose, at what point do you say it is not likely enough to the point that you would say it is not coherent, it is illogical, it is unreasonable that you could pull them out without even looking in order. I'm now at one in 10,000. Have I lost everybody? At what point, at what point do you go like, there's a trick? Are we there yet? I'm sorry, y'all probably can't see over there. So this should be what, the six? Yeah, okay, good. You're still, we're still with me, right? And what, what is the odds? What is one in 10? Tell you, I'll jump to the 10 if you want me to. I'll just, I'll just do the 10 next to show you. I can do whichever one I want, right? So, so you go, that's amazing. If I did all 10 in a row, what's the odds? Anybody know? One in 10 billion. The odds of pulling out 10 things in a row is one in 10 billion. At some point along the way, even those of you who buy lottery tickets should be going like, oh, no, probably not likely, right? At that point, it's like, no, I could go up into several millions, but billion, no, I'm not willing to do, right? Here's the deal. What are the odds of getting something from nothing? We don't know. It's never happened, right? It's never happened. We don't know. But the odds are real. That means the, probably the odds are really low. The fact that we've never seen it, it never happened, probably means it's really, really low. And yet, that happened. What are the chances of getting life from not life? Life from lifelessness. What are the odds? Well, we don't know because it's never happened. In all the amount of time and money and billions that have been spent to recreate life in the lab, it's never happened, not even stage one, once. At some point, the statistics, a reasonable person would say, probably didn't happen. Now, wait, let's clarify. Could I have pulled out 10 items in a row? It is possible. It is not reasonable to assume that I did it randomly. It is irrational to assume that I did it randomly. It is rational, and that's the question you've got to ask. What is the threshold for you to go, okay, that's not rational? Some people have enough blind faith in something we absolutely have never seen and may never see and could not know. Nope, something must have come from nothing. I'd rather believe that with, if I may, blind faith than that there is a creator and designer. That life came from lifeless? No, no, I'd rather accept that in blind faith that that has happened at least once and that that first life survived long enough to reproduce and eat and, and evolve and all those different things that it had to do all on its own without dying in the first tenth of a second of its life. I have to believe that that's more likely than that there is an intelligent creator, life giver. That's, in my opinion, not reasonable. It's not reasonable. More rational, much more rational, not, de not definitive beyond any possible other explanation, but much more rational is that. And finally, there's intuition, and I'll acknowledge this one. This is one that some Christians don't talk about much. There is intuition. That part of why I believe what I believe is because the opposite is unthinkable to me. If all we are are biochemical sacks, and that's it, that's all we are, 
We're just more complex versions of amoebas or ants or whatever. My love for my family is nothing more really than genetic preference. My love for my wife is nothing more really than the mating instinct. My love for you is nothing more than a herd mentality. It just is nothing. It doesn't mean anything beyond that. And that when I get asked by an atheist, what's, what would convince you not to believe? I would tell them, the last rock you're going to have to push over is that one. If you convince me of everything else, you're still going to be stuck with me going, but you realize if I push this rock over, it, what it means is none of this matters. That has no meaning except meaning that we arbitrarily assign to it. And we're really just complex ants. And that's, I'm not willing to accept that. That's, that is okay that that's part of the reason for your belief, the reason that the hope that you have. Those are all possible reasons, and they overlap, and there's a thousand different conversations to have about them. Millions upon millions upon millions of books, pages of books have been written on these topics. It's, it's a welcome conversation. I love talking about these things. I think there is a reason for the hope that we have. In fact, I think there are thousands upon thousands of reasons for the hope that we have. And it's what holds us to the truth when we face the persecution. Remember, we're talking about a man who just a few years after he wrote this, in prison, about to be executed, that his wife is executed before he is, according to church history. She gets dragged before in front of him by his cell, and he has a chance to say one thing to her, and what he says is, remember the Lord. That's not a cheap faith. He's not going like, oh, the truth is we hid the body but remember the Lord. If they hid the body, Peter knows it. If Jesus was alive and not dead and not alive, Peter knows it. And yet those are his final words. He writes whole books like this. Didn't make any money on it. He writes them from prison. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's like what it told the wives up earlier. If you have an unbelieving husband, that the way you love him, even as an unbeliever, causes him to rethink his own heart. By the way, notice he said, was it, was it a rhetorical question earlier? Who will, who will harm you if, you do, if you're zealous to do what's good? Notice what, verse, what this verse says. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior. So the arrogant, disrespectful, judgy, defensive, jerk Christians are apparently doing something wrong. If that's you, you're doing something wrong. You're supposed to be engaging in these conversations, expressing the hope that you have in such a way, that, which makes sense. Remember, don't speak with, with not arrogant and lying and abusive language, not with oily language, but instead seek peace and pursue it. That applies to everything we do. All this is fitting in with what Peter is saying. Um, when, when I typed in, why are Christians so, and left it blank on a Google search, top options were things like hypocritical, judgmental, mean, and my favorite, unchristian. What we want is when people have those interactions with us who don't believe, they get done, and they go off and they're like, those Christians, they're so this and they're so that. But at least in the back of their mind somewhere, they're going, I mean, there's that one guy. I mean, there's that one church. So what we experienced a few years ago when we had an atheist visit us and come talk to us, he expected to be mistreated. And he left and told me that was the most, I was treated more like a VIP than I have in any other place in my entire life. He's like, I wish my Christian mom lived in Tyler so she could go to your church. You might think about this stuff, man. That you experience something different than that, that's the application of this. For it is better, Peter says, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The assumption for Peter is that suffering and persecution is a real thing. 
But when we're self-absorbed or unhelpful or unkind or unforgiving or impatient or inflexible, when we lack mercy or mourning or meekness or purity, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, it's not persecution, we're sensing. We're not sensing persecution from our spouse or our boss or our lost neighbor or our culture. What we are experiencing is the hurt that comes from trying to be in a relationship with us. It's that simple. When you get caught in sin or infidelity or theft or abuse or cheating, that pain you feel isn't persecution, it's just consequences. And Peter says, you're going to face this suffering, you need to face this suffering for Christ's sake, not your own. We want to make sure when we suffer for Christ, it's not merely for our character flaws. If we aren't liked, are we totally sure it's just because we're not likable, not because we're Christian? So the truth is, Galatians, Paul clarifies for us in Galatians this idea. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I think this is the same thought that Peter is saying back in 1 Peter 3. Against such things, there is no law. So you'll be facing persecution if you're those living out those things and you face something that's in unjust, but it's when, the person, when we face persecution, it should be unjust. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. A good reason to crucify the flesh and its lust is so that our suffering is clearly persecution and not merely that we're jerks. And that's something for us to work and look at and talk to the Holy Spirit. And maybe if you're really gutsy, ask the people around you what makes you hard to live with. And so maybe if they love you enough and they aren't afraid of you enough and they'll let you know, then you can figure out, okay, this is some things I need to work on in my life so that if I face persecution, it will be persecution and not just consequences. It's a sobering thought, and I think Peter wants us to have it. We're going to suffer. Make sure you're suffering for the right things. Will you stand with me? And we're going to ask the Spirit to evaluate that in us and each of us. Father, I thank you so much for the power of your word, and I thank you for how practical it is. It's like this stuff was written today, not 2,000 years ago. And as we as the church in America, maybe maybe we're going to face new levels of persecution like we haven't before. It is certainly plausible that we would become enemies of the state again someday, just like every church, capital C church, has been throughout most of history, and sometimes the times when we're not are the hardest times, the worst times. Because your son suffered, and he gave us the example of suffering. Lord, I, I pray that we would learn to live this out. And I pray that we'd look at our own hearts. God, I pray that you would, if I suffer someday, it's not because I'm a know-it-all. I want to suffer someday because I'm arrogant. I want to suffer just because I'm uh, lustful or impatient or lacks, lacks self-control. I want to suffer, Lord. If I'm going to suffer, I want to suffer for your son. And I pray that you would conform us to his image so that when people hate us, they're really just hating him. And that we could live with that for as long as we do. God, I pray for this church that you help us be the kind of church that become the kind of people conformed to the image of your son so that when that day comes, we're prepared to face it alongside with him. And alongside with you, we can laugh. In the meantime, Lord, I pray we'll be able to disciple and raise up and train up a whole generation in a church that become the kind of people Conform to the image of your son so that when that day comes, we're prepared to face it alongside with him. And alongside with you, we can laugh. In the meantime, Lord, I pray we'll be able to disciple and raise up and train up a whole generation ready 
to hold fast to your gospel and to your truth and to the power of your word with fidelity, no matter what pressure we face. And I pray this good gift that only you can give in your son's magnificent name. Amen.